Hi, this is What You Say in English, Season 3, Episode 37. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 37 of What You Say in English, the podcast in which I listen to you and give you my professional feedback. This is your host, Frank. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, someone whose work I deeply admire and who has made a significant impact in the field of English language teaching. Her name is Rachel Soteri, and she hails from Athens, Greece, and her journey in the world of ELT began in 2014. She was looking for a fulfilling and rewarding career change when someone suggested she should consider becoming an English teacher. And this is basically what this episode will be about. Not only will we be speaking about the different career options that you have once you finish your C2 preparation, but even if you have taken the C2 proficiency quite a while ago. In Rachel's case, despite her initial reservations, she decided to give it a try and embarked on a CELTA course this decision turned out to be a transformative one, setting her on a path that she continues to traverse with passion and dedication. In this episode, we'll delve into various aspects of Rachel's work and her perspective on ELT. We'll discuss her interest in teaching pronunciation for listening purposes, a topic she's deeply passionate about, just like me. Rachel believes that as teachers, we can do a lot to help our students overcome barriers in pronunciation to improve their listening skills. We'll also explore Rachel's thoughts on teacher and trainer talk, the things that as teachers and trainers say in the classroom or the training room, and how they may affect our learners. Rachel has conducted informal classroom investigations and analyzed her teacher talk, providing fascinating insights into the impact of our words on students. Moreover, we'll touch on the topic of native speakerism, a subject very dear to me. Rachel, along with other inspiring figures in the field, has been actively discussing and challenging the biases and discrimination associated with this issue. This episode promises to be an enlightening conversation filled with insights and reflections. However, I won't spoil it too much for you. Tune in to hear directly from Rachel about her experiences, her work, and her thoughts on these important topics. Before we dive in, I want to mention that this episode was recorded on video. If you're listening on Spotify, you'll have the unique opportunity to watch our conversation. However, if you're tuning in from another platform, you'll be able to enjoy only the audio version of our discussion. Remember, every episode is a step towards improving our understanding and practice of teaching and learning English. So, let's dive in together. Well, thank you very much, Rachel, uh, for joining me this time. Um, I'm actually finishing this third season of the podcast. And who else? I mean, who other than the incredible Rachel Terry? <laughs> wow, so. you pronounced my name <laughs> perfectly. <laughs> Ten points. <laughs> yes. I got to give it to a friend of mine who is a co-worker. She's also from Greece. And um, oh, that's she's nice given me yeah. a few pointers on how to pronounce it's like the pizza it's like that so in pizza it's a terry so yeah that's what i usually <laughs> tell people <laughs> to help them 
Good. So, well, thank you very much for joining me this time. I know it's been very hectic for you, very difficult. So I really appreciate your time here with me. And thank you, Frank. And it's lovely to finally meet you face to screen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, Rachel, can you tell um, our listeners a little bit about you, your background as a teacher, your experience in ELT? Sure. Well, I'm from Athens, Greece. I wasn't always involved in teaching in ELT. Uh, I actually started my journey quite late in about 2014 when I started CELTA. I was finding myself a bit lost, like I needed a career change. I was experiencing this so-called career stagnation. I wanted to do something fulfilling, something rewarding, you know. So someone said to me, well, you have the C2. I had passed it with distinction when I was a teenager. Why don't you become an English teacher? Uh, and I remember I said, just because I'm proficient in the language doesn't mean I can teach it. I actually said that uh, lots of years ago, but it was a good idea. And I said, well, maybe there's a course, maybe if they can help me uh, become a teacher. And if I'm any good at it, I'll consider it. So that's uh, when I heard about CELTA. Uh, I was in the UK back then, but I came back to Greece to do it at CELTA Athens. Uh, I did an intensive course and I realized that this was my calling, that this was what I really wanted to do. I loved being around people, children. I loved learning. I loved learning languages. And it felt a bit, you know, it felt natural. It felt like this was what I was supposed to do. And that's how I got involved in teaching uh, about 10 years ago uh, by doing CELTA. Later on, I did CELTA um, because I realized it's not a temporary job. You know, I'm, I'm going to this is going to be it. So I need to grow. I need to keep learning. I need to learn about the language, about methodology. Um, so I did Delta as well uh, about five years later, I think. it was. I started it in 2018, but I did a part-time option um, because I'd heard these horror stories, you know, about Delta being super difficult as well, people failing the exam once or twice. So I thought maybe as a person, I don't want to rush these processes. I want to reflect, I want to experiment, I want to study, I, I need time. So I did Delta, I finished it in two years, I think. So, yeah. Really? yeah. In, in your case, in your case, for example, the, the period in which you finished the Delta, did you start working immediately after that? Actually, it was, wait, I finished in June and then it was summer, you know, summer schools recruiting. So I found a job at EF Oxford. I went there, that was my first real uh, post-CELTA teaching experience. It went really well. I got some references and then I landed a job in Spain, which was my first, let's say, permanent, uh, serious teaching job, if you will, where I stayed there for three years. So that's what happened. First summer school for a month or so. Uh, then I went to Spain where I stayed for three years. Uh, yeah, and that was it. Then I kind of roamed around Europe because of my husband's job. I was teaching part-time, a little bit online, and now exclusively online, yeah. And between the post-Celta um, experience to start the Delta, how long did it take for you to realize that this is, this is my true calling? Four years. It was four years because I needed experience. I thought I need to first teach a lot. I need to teach a lot of different, in a lot of different contexts, like young learners, maybe business English, teenagers, adults, different nationalities as well, because when you're doing Delta, you need to show that awareness, you know, that you can uh, actually identify problems that students from different backgrounds may have, whether these are lexical, phonological, or, you know, attitudinal, whatever. So you need experience. 
uh, teaching in lots of different contexts as well, different ages. Uh, and I thought that maybe just teaching in Spain for three years wasn't enough. So I, I tried to, I, I taught two-year-olds, for example, in Croatia without wow. speaking a word of Croatia, Croatian, which was a huge challenge and it really taught me a lot. Uh, wow. Yeah, and then later on business English. So I branched out a bit and then I felt a bit more confident that, okay, maybe it's time now. Uh, to start Delta, uh, but I was still worried about the theory, you know, because there was a lot of reading that there is a lot of reading that you need to do when you do Delta and you have to be prepared for that. Uh, yes, and I was absolutely. a bit worried about that, but it turns out that this was what I actually loved about the Delta because Delta was um, too focused on the practical side of teaching. And I am more of a, I need to know the theory before yes. kind of learner. So Delta really answered my whys, my questions. You know, I started reading and enjoying it. And, and I realized why teachers may teach differently because they have different beliefs and that there is no right or wrong, but you really need to open up your mind and experiment and make your own uh, informed decisions, you know, and, and personal evaluations. So that was the good thing about Delta as far as I'm concerned. And in, I think this is very interesting because in terms of learning and, and as the learning process goes, because it's pretty much, you're describing pretty much my, um. my journey as well as a teacher and, and communicator and, and whatnot. I also went through the Celta and Delta. So I totally understand your predicament when it comes the time in which you have to make a decision and you have to say, this is my path. This is, I want to, you know, delve deeper into this. Um, and now I take it you all, you're also uh, a teacher trainer as well. That is correct. So um, my first experience, let's say, with teacher training was when I was in my second year of teaching. I was kind of promoted to a senior teacher. I was supposed to observe my colleagues, give them feedback. Uh, that really didn't go so well because I had, you know, really little experience teaching oh. uh, and training. No trainer training. So I realized, okay, this is something interesting that I really want to do, but I have to know how to do it. And I have to first gain some teaching experience before I tell other people, you know, how to do it. Uh, and I need to reflect on my own teaching before I am trying to help other teachers reflect on their own teaching. So I realized, okay, maybe after five years, I'll try it again. And that's what I did. I gained some experience, some teaching experience. Then I did uh, a course, the train the trainer course. And then I volunteered because, of course, nobody will hire you if you're inexperienced, and that makes sense. Um, so I said, when you can't work, volunteer. That will give you some experiential knowledge, make some uh, interesting, uh, you network as well, you meet people, professionals. And I uh, volunteered for Refugee Ed and the Syrian Youth Assembly. I learned a lot. And then I felt, okay, I'm ready to apply for teacher training jobs as well. And I believe that it's also because of my blog. This blog really put me on the map, I think, because I've shared lots of what I do, uh, my, my studies, my materials, my reflections. So I was, uh, I was considered, you know, for these roles after people had seen my CV and read my blog. They say, okay, maybe we can give her a chance, even if she's a, you know, a rookie. She seems passionate. She seems interested. And that's what happened. They offered me. Uh, some opportunities. And now I am working with three centers, one in the UK, one in Italy, 
and uh, I'll be a Delta. I'm a Delta trainer in training now. I'll be an assistant course tutor on Delta courses. In yes, that, yeah. I was. I was about to to go. You know, <laughs> through that because I also heard that you broke the yeah. news in LinkedIn, and and I heard about it. Yeah, yeah I'm really excited about well, that. Right? Sorry. Uh, you're also training for Celta, right? Like training Celta. No, no, no. Actually, I skipped that. I went straight to Delta. I was, uh, I think, what was it? A couple of years ago when I started applying for a Celta trainer uh, as a Celta tutor and trainer. But I, I was, you know, people weren't looking or they need you to be already working for that center or institution yeah. and then they train you up. It doesn't really work like that. Uh, so that didn't work out for me. I think I, yeah, I applied for like a year and a half no, but it, it's just, it didn't seem like it was going to happen. But right out of the blue, I was offered to do that uh, on Delta courses. And I said, oh, it will be slightly challenging to go straight to Delta. But then again, you know, I like challenges. So I said, I'll do it. I'm not going to miss out on this opportunity. And yeah, it's going to, uh, I, know, I completed I know my training right. and I'll start officially in September. I know, for example, that you have delivered quite a few workshops in collaboration with a lot of people, anything that stands out that you would like to, because I know that you're interested in different areas of, of ELT. So is there a topic that, that really draws your attention that you, you've explored and you would like to explore a little bit further? Yeah, actually, um, I've given five talks or six. Uh, I don't remember. I'm more confident as an introvert. I'm more confident writing, you know, hiding behind my blog uh, and my computer. But um, these have been positive experiences as well. Um, and yeah, I think what I'm interested in, I'm interested in uh, teaching pronunciation for listening, for um, listening purposes, because I'm, I've worked with a lot of students, especially from Spain, and I'm sure you, you have uh, similar experiences they struggle with listening a lot. And as the typical untrained teacher, I would tell them, you have to go back home and, you know, listen to a lot of songs and watch a lot of films, which, okay, it is exposure to input. But as teachers, we also need to be able to train our students to overcome these barriers, right? So I realized when I was doing Delta, especially uh, the focus on phonology, that there's so much we can do as teachers to help them. Uh, with pronunciation training to improve their listening skills. Of course, also for intelligibility and being able to express themselves uh, intelligibly, but more specifically for listening because they struggled in that area. So I, I'm really interested in that. I became also a PRONSIG uh, committee member, although I'm not an expert. I'm not uh, anywhere near being a pronunciation expert, but I'm an enthusiast and I'm a learner, and I'm happy to be working with these people who are pronunciation experts, and I'm learning a lot from them. So that's an area, definitely an area I'm always interested in. The other one would be teacher and trainer talk, the things we as teachers and trainers say in the classroom or the training room and how they may affect uh, our learners. So I've done a little bit of classroom, informal classroom investigations, and I've analyzed my teacher talk. And I've also done the same for my trainer talk. I also wrote an article for the teacher trainer journal where I analyze the things that I said and why I said them, right? The purpose, let's say, uh, because I think it's quite important. I'm, I find it fascinating, this area. It's like mixing um, also kind of psychology, feeling a bit of a counselor, this humanistic school of thought, like all this combined together. And we need to always be aware of how we talk to people and the things that we say, you know, how they may have, we may have different intentions, but they may backfire. 
etc. So that's also another area of interest. Yeah. Gracious me, you're basically describing my way of thinking, definitely. Yeah. I'm also interested in in how uh, we perceive language and how we construct and deconstruct language, how uh, intelligibility is more of a, for example, um, mental state and how you um, accustomed you are to a certain different accent because sometimes what is intelligible to me is not really intelligible you know, to another person. Um, it's, it's how phonology is deconstructed in the brain, basically. It's not really, of course, we talk about articulation. We talk about um, aspects of phonology and phonetics that have to do with the realization of sounds and whatnot. But it, everything is in the brain and everything is, is how we, we understand language, how we listen to language, how, we, how deaf we are, for example, yeah. when it comes to a, a particular sound that I'm producing and then the learner is just deaf to that sound in specific that can cause problems in intelligibility, for example. And it all so, depends and, and on I, their nationality and identity, right? But that's why we should be definitely. talking about intelligibilities, plural, right? Because yes, what is intelligible definitely. to you may not be intelligible to me and so on, depending yes. on our background. That's why in my case, for example, I, I'm, I'm well sure that you probably know her as well, Laura Patsko. Um, she's done incredible research on pronunciation, um, English as a lingua franca, and talking about intelligibility, analyzing speakers of other languages, speaking in English, because that's, that's part of the learning process of, um, David Crystal said in one of his books that there are three to one uh, non-native speakers of English, two native speakers of English, and more often than not, you will interact with someone who's not a native speaker of English. And, and that's what, you know, where, where all these aspects come together and, and, and create this, what we call intelligibility. So I think it's really interesting that you're mentioning that point because it really, you know, it, it rings true to me. You know, in my heart, it's definitely my calling <laughs> as, a, as well. Glad and to hear that. Talking about that topic, you know, intelligibility, native speakers, non-native speakers of English, mm -hmm. um, there's a new trend, and I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people, probably my listeners, are not aware of that trend, and there's a lot of people, experts, coming forward and talking about native speakers, which is a kind of discrimination towards people whose first language is not English, um, in terms of finding jobs and, or uh, especially teachers, you know, people who devote their time to teaching languages and English, they sometimes get, dis get discriminated because they don't, they're not native speakers of the language. Um, what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, I've recently also read, um, written an article where I collected a lot of quotes from books and articles that I had read about native speakerism. They mentioned it's neo-racist as an ideology, uh, or the fallacy, because they call it a, uh, that the native speaker has received this mythological status. There are, there are no data to show that every native speaker, or let's call them L1 speakers, are, you know, a priori better. Like, just because they are native speakers, they are immediately superior and better teachers, right? It's just an origin. It's not a qualification. And we are in education for crying out that we should be talking, we should be valuing education, not origin. But this is what I think. So uh, I think native speakerism is about labels and stereotypes, 
right? It's about labeling teachers, comparing teachers, and perpetuating a dichotomy. You are L1, you are an L1 speaker, you are superior. You are L2, you are inferior. Teachers can get hired based on their first language if they have or if they don't have any qualifications that can be relevant. And similarly, L2 speakers uh, are rejected a lot of times because of uh, their uh, origin, even if they have qualifications. Everyone knows what happened to me, I think. I sent an application to Inglingua Karlsruhe. They admitted my CV was interesting and that they were indeed looking for teachers, but they explicitly stated they won't hire me because I'm Greek. Uh, and it's company policy. That's it. I can apply for a job teaching Greek. I'm welcome to apply. And um, exactly. But I had all these emails, all these exchanges, all these records of discrimination. And when I shared that with my community on Facebook and other social media, I was just venting, but my community really stood up for me and encouraged me to take legal action. So I did that. Uh, luckily, I did that. I, I had time to do it because you only have two months, I think, to do that. Otherwise, you, you, that's it. You lose your chance. And um, uh, I found a lawyer through Eltas, the local uh, association in Germany, and we took them to court. And in an out-of-court settlement, they, uh, the judge told them, this is discrimination. Native speakers, uh, being a native speaker should not be a criterion, not even for language teachers. Uh, so you either go to court and you will lose or you just pay them 3000 now and that's it. End of story. So they paid. Uh, and that was, that was a small step. It was the first time that a teacher ever took action, did that and, and was, you know, and heard these words from a judge, like this validation that yes, it's wrong. It shouldn't be done. Because yeah. there are various opinions about this, Frank, and I'm sure you read posts on yes. LinkedIn. Yes. People have opinions. They will say that I'm being political. I'm creating a negative atmosphere. I've read a lot of comments lately, but that's not the case. All I'm, all I'm advocating for, all I want is for us to be a community of teachers yes. with equal opportunities because we are educators and we should value education and not origin. And we should not try to sabotage each other, even as individuals, not only as professionals, right? That's a nice thing to do. But if you advertise yourself on LinkedIn as a native British speaker, the message you're giving out is, prefer me, I'm better, right? And you are doing something to perpetuate this, this distinction, this dichotomy. So recently I just went out and said, I, I, try, I would like my colleagues to... Stop doing that, please. I mean, respectfully in the spirit of solidarity. Do not do that. Do not advertise yourself as a native speaker because you're implying I'm not good enough, even if I've spent so much money and time on my uh, professional development. I will never be enough. And our students who are not, they are Spanish, they are Turkish, they will never be good enough to become English teachers. You're telling them not to believe in themselves as well, that they will not have this opportunity to grow should they choose to yes. pursue that career. Right. Actually, I run um, I run a Facebook group for um, language assistants here in in Spain. And basically, it's a community to find a little bit of help. Sometimes they post uh, information about how to find jobs in in, in the area of language teaching for mm -hmm. language assistants. You know that most of them come from other countries and not necessarily English speaking countries. And one thing that I'm very vigilant about is yeah. uh, making sure that the job postings that they, they offer do not contain any shred of discrimination. And I have, I have it in my policies of the Facebook group because I'm very adamant. I mean, I'm very 
hell bent on on creating a safe atmosphere, a safe of environment course, for a lot of, of people. And I actually tried to school them, to educate them, go to this website, find information, saying that we're looking, not even saying something like um, native sounding or native like, because that's basically nothing. I mean, it's it's not an indicator, it's not a descriptor, it's not something that you can base your experience as, te as a teacher. Um, even saying something that seems a little harmless, like um, we're hiring teachers who have a native-like accent. That is basically, that's nothing. Um, you can have any accent you want. Uh, even people, I've, I've got friends from Scotland who have been discriminated also, and they're native speakers, but of course that's irrelevant, but they've been No, it's not irrelevant. It's very... also unfair. I totally understand and, and, and believe yeah. that it is unfair. Mm. Or from different so, parts of the UK, maybe, you know, it depends on the... Uh, the, the financial status as well. They can be discriminated against. They might yes. be asked to to change their accent in a way which which is really unfair. It is. Yeah, definitely. And and of course, I will try to do my best on you know keep on working and my with my podcast. I always try to raise awareness on uh, being confident in your language skills, being working on your intelligibility. I'm an examiner myself. I also try, but I'm a team leader. I train other examiners. So I always try to encourage in my team a, a, a spirit of um, being open to different accents as long as communication is not impeded, as long as um, there's there's a barrier that, that becomes like a hindrance in terms of um, getting yourself understood. So... So yes, it's it's very important, and I I think that your what you went through in Germany, I think it was um, a wake up call for a lot of language schools out there. Unfortunately, I hope so because I, I know still it's still think, happening. Yes, I still think that this, this needs to be taken as a, I, I'm sorry to put you in that situation. Like you're, you're going to be like the icon. Of, no, know, no, no, hardly. I'm actually, I want to mention three people who have also been quite inspiring in this, uh, about this specific topic. They've done uh, their PhDs and a lot of research. There's Anna Jovic, who is a Serbian teacher of English. I attended an Eve talk, which was amazing. She presented the data from her research Frank, this is outrageous. Serbian teachers have to apply with fake passports. They pretend to be Americans to get a job teaching English in Serbia. Uh, employers are fine with that as long as they can prove that they are Americans and they can hide their nationality from their students. Wow. That's Anna Jovic. She's done a lot uh, and she, she gives talks and she presents uh, at a variety of conferences. I must follow on LinkedIn. Tomasz Paczarkowski from Poland has also shared his uh, uh, dissertation with me, his thesis with me. And he wrote that in Poland, there is native speakerism, yes. Uh, however, Polish teachers don't quite feel um, discriminated against or inferior. However, uh, native speakers are, they continue to get hired with fewer qualifications and higher salaries, which is, of course, unfair because this is the impact of native speakerism. Okay, we may give you jobs, you know, to keep you happy, but you will never get the same salary as an L1 speaker or a prestigious job. You can never hope to become, I don't know, a director of studies or a teacher trainer. And there is also Vincent Richard, um, uh, Vincent Richard, horrible French accent, sorry, um, who had 
Yeah. And I, I learned French for five years, you know, it went to waste. So he was discriminated against a year and a half ago, and uh, he's still waiting for an answer. He's taken legal action. He's uh, constantly contacting, calling, writing letters to the French Ministry of Rights and uh, actively fighting on LinkedIn. He's also blogging about it. He records his journey and all his fights on his blog, and nobody has still got back to him. He's still waiting. Maybe some guy on the phone told him, we're looking into your case. It's crazy. It's almost been two years. So we have France, we have Serbia, we have Poland, and that's just, you know, the cases that we actually, we've heard of because they've been published. I'm, I'm pretty sure that a lot is happening in Asia as well, even worse, perhaps. And yeah, thank you for, for drawing attention to that. We certainly no, need to keep discussing it until it I, stops happening. I actually started with the bug, if you want to call it like that, with Marek. I'm not going to say his surname because I will probably butcher it. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, from, he's from Poland. You know Marek. Should be Kitschkowiak, uh, I think, if, if I'm right. But, you know, I'm not. <laughs> wait, say it again. Say it again. Kitschkowiak. Could it be? Kitschkowiak. Okay. Yeah. And I, I've got friends from Poland. Oh, my God. I mean... They're going to kill me. Oh I love God. them, but they're hard to pronounce. You know, their names are hard exactly. to pronounce, just well, like mine. <laughs> Marek's job has been, for me, has been in, uh, in super important because actually that's, that was the moment in which I started finding my identity because I, I was born in Venezuela. The first language that I learned mm. was Spanish. I didn't know that. Wow. Since, yeah, since I was very little... My, my family moved to the U.S., so I grew up in the U.S., so I have this bilingual uh, mix in my head. Sometimes I say things that have a, a lot of influence from Spanish, but other things that I say in Spanish that have a lot of influence from English. So oh, my so brain cool. is a very, <laughs> a very interesting mix of languages. I can um, imagine. I also, I also learned, try to learn Russian for some time, Ooh. and yes, it's, it's been a mess, but... It's a beautiful mess. And, and one, beautiful uh, going mess. back to Marek's uh, job is because um, through him, I started actually finding my, my identity as, as an English speaker and as a teacher. I, and I fully embrace now both languages. I mean, as part of myself. I mean, and I remember that I'm not going to say where, but in one of the jobs that I had, I remember that I, I for some reason... I got hold of the interview notes that were written about me. And in those interview notes, it said um, a lot of experience, blah, 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 blah. But with American English with slightly Latino overtones. Oh, come on. <laughs> and oh. I, I, thought it was, I, mean, I thought it was funny, but deep down I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> I wanted to know exactly what, what it meant because, I mean, of course, I, mean, I grew up in Florida. Um, I, my friends were all Latinos, most of them. And it's literally impossible. I mean, that's part of my, just, I, I didn't know how to take it. I didn't know how to yeah. take it. Yeah. I have to say. But it, it certainly didn't make you feel, you know, good about it, right? It, yeah. it, it wasn't I, maybe, a nice exactly. comment. Exactly. I didn't know how to take it. So. Now I just take it as a, you know, whatever, it's fine. But it's, it's that part of labeling you as, as this type of speaker of English. I mean, it's, it, it drives me up the wall. And 
And when people ask me like, oh, but where are you from exactly? I tell them I'm from the world. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'm, from, I'm from the world. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> I'm from the world and I, 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 you know, I'm pretty sure of what I'm doing. I've studied, I studied for this. I'm an English teacher. That's, that's what you need to know. Exactly. Yeah. You and know, the only adjectives we need are these qualified, experienced, passionate, multilingual, you know, exactly. intercultural I, and all that. I, I recently made an episode about plurilingualism and how uh, exam boards like Cambridge are embracing plural, plural, uh, God, another word that I can't say, plurilingualism <laughs> in terms of their... I need to um, find time to listen to that one, yeah. Yes, it's it's uh, uh, actually because of the pandemic. I think they were they were going to do like a symposium about plurilingualism, mm -hmm. and all the papers that were written basically they were take they were put together in one of the research notes by Cambridge. Um, I, I put the link in in the description of the episode. If you if you search through the things that I posted mm -hmm. on LinkedIn, you will see it. Uh, I put the link about that particular episode, and I talked about plurilingualism and how. Uh, examining bodies like Cambridge are taking the the whole linguistic repertoire of test takers, not only English but also other wow. linguistic repertoires, and it's just it, I think that's it's huge. Super yeah. yeah, exactly. That's super interesting because it really opens a lot of doors. Because of course you need to get the the examiners trained up for that. Um, how to consider all the different aspects of your linguistic repertoire and and. Adapt Talk about progress. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I think that's amazing. amazing. Those, yeah. those papers, those research notes were posted, were uh, published about two years ago. And I haven't heard a lot about yeah. it. And I thought Me it was, I was just rummaging over the the um, website, the, the Cambridge website, and, and trying to see in their blog, for example, what they what knew they had, because I, I always check what they post. And, and then I discovered that article and I, I said, I need to talk about this. Wow. And yeah, I, I, I did an episode about it and, and going in that direction, for example, uh, publishing, um, making more course books and methods and, and, and trying to embrace this plurilingualism, this uh, native speakers or non-native speakers of English. And that was my, one of my final questions to you. Do you see yourself creating material like officially creating course books or collaborating with other experts on, you know, new material? Uh, honestly, you know, I, I haven't given this any thought. I am supposed to. I'm taking. No, I'm not. So, I'm supposed to. <laughs> I'm so tired. So I use this, you know, subconsciously. I'm supposed to take this module, and the next module I'm taking on my MA uh, is materials development. Uh, and it's the last one. Then it's dissertation time. Uh, so you never know. I do share materials on my blog, but it's just the lesson plans that I, you know, write for my students. Nothing fancy, just a typical PDF, you know, with the text and maybe a photo if you're lucky. Uh, but yeah, it, it could be a potential area of interest, but maybe later in the future. Now I'm getting to know myself as a teacher trainer. I'm trying to focus on that. Uh, I finished one course that was quite helpful and gaining more experience. And I am the kind of person who does lots of things at the same time. And I want to limit that. I don't want to do this, keep doing it anymore. So I'm going to focus on one thing for now. Teacher training, Delta, you know, the Delta course. And maybe in the future, who knows? It is a potential area of interest for sure. 
I'm not really using specific course books at the moment because I create my own materials based on, you know, what I find on the internet that is relevant to my learners, like articles or videos, etc. So I'm, I'm also not familiar with most of the trendy and current course books and, and what's happening. Though I, the last time I read an article about native speakers being represented in, in course books, I'm under the impression that I read um, that they're mostly secondary, let's say, excuse me, they play secondary roles. They're not really the main characters, for instance, or they're usually the foreigner, the tourists, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So they don't really get, um, you know, they're not really uh, the main character, let's say, of a text or a video or something. I could be wrong. Things might have changed since then. That's why I'm a bit tentative. I don't know. That's the last thing I heard. But as I said, I'm not using course books at the moment. So I don't know, but I'm pretty confident that, you know, the landscape will change uh, and pretty soon. I don't know. This is what I see on LinkedIn. This is what I see in our community. I'm, I'm positive yeah. that we, we're having, you know, we're making progress and we'll see positive changes quite soon. Yeah. Well, in my case, I, I basically, of course, I teach general English and online English, business English, but my big chunk of work is usually exam preparation for C1, um, C2. And B2. And of course, I have to rely on course books, um, textbooks, and, you know, all those things because finding material, reliable material, is actually quite difficult. In my case, I have doubled it a little bit with artificial intelligence and chat GPT to create Me too, yeah. material. Um, and it's it's been kind of good and bad. I mean, I, it saves a lot of time when it comes to creating material, especially when, a, when you have to create a, an original writing or reading activity. But still, you have to tweak it a little bit. Um, but definitely, I mean, in my case, um, I've thought about also writing. I still, I have a few ideas in my head and I'll see when I'm, when I'm going to start. <laughs> but um, but yes, I do have a few ideas that I think it's are great to be have goals, you know, and dreams yes. and yeah, go after yes. them. Perfect. Yes. So just to finish our conversation, Rachel, um, any final words that you would like our listeners to take away from what you, from everything that we, we have talked about? Uh, I would say, uh, believe in yourself because if you don't do that, you know, nobody will, you're the first person who needs to believe in yourself. I was quite insecure when I was younger and uh, I didn't know about my options. So what we were talking about earlier, when you enter ELT there, you have a lot of options. You may teach in a specific context, like young learners or business English, or you may teach, uh, you may become a teacher trainer or a writer. You may blog, you may, you might have some ideas and you might even write a chapter for a book. We have lots of options, you know, and we need to explore them. We need to be aware of them. Uh, and I would say... Always work hard and study. Nothing comes for free. And if it does, it's like easy come, easy go, right? We need to work hard and to learn and keep learning and unlearning and learning and reflecting uh, on everything we do. And don't, I, who said that ego is not your amigo? Was it Leo Gomez? I don't know. I love this quote because <laughs> especially when it comes to teachers, we need to leave our ego at home. We need yes. to see this journey as an open mind, you know, Open, uh, open, uh, I'm stuck. <laughs> Mind opening experience. Yes. Uh, learn new perspectives. Challenge what we know and what we do and not attend a course or a conference thinking, I'm already a pro. I already know everything. 
you know, be open to, to listening and learning new perspectives and experimenting and then making your own decisions. Believe in yourself, work hard, have strong beliefs loosely held. I guess that's it. Yeah. Very powerful words to live by. <laughs> exactly. Not just for teachers, right? <laughs> well, Rachel, thank you very much. And this is the end of today's episode. As we wrap up this enlightening episode with Rachel Tateri, let's reflect on the key takeaways from our conversation. Firstly, Rachel's passion for teaching pronunciation for listening purposes is a reminder of the importance of this often overlooked aspect of language learning. Her belief that teachers can significantly help students overcome pronunciation barriers and improve their listening skills is backed up by research. There are experts in the field like Mark Hancock, who has recently published a series of books on pronunciation and especially one on listening skills. Secondly, our discussion on teacher and trainer talk highlighted the profound impact of our words can have on learners. This is something that has always been part of the curriculum of pre-service training programs like CELTA or post-service training courses like DELTA. Lastly, our conversation on native speakerism, a topic which is, as I said, it's very dear to me, is a critical reminder of biases and discrimination that exist in the field of ELT. This issue is being actively discussed and challenged by many in the field, including Rachel. In this regard, I want to mention Marin Kichkoviak. I learned how to say the name lastly. Thank you, Rachel, for teaching me how to pronounce it. Marek is an advocate against native speakerism who hosts a website providing resources and support for those who feel discriminated against on the basis of their accent or origin. The link to this website will be in the episode description. All the people mentioned in this podcast episode will be listed on the episode description. You're encouraged to follow them on their professional networks to stay updated with their work. However, please remember to maintain professionalism and respect their time and space. As always, every episode is a step towards improving our understanding and practice of teaching English and learning English as well. Thank you for joining me this week, and I look forward to having you with us in the next episodes, which are going to be the last ones of this season. Thank you for being part of what you say in English. Until next week, bye-bye.